pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, that you're involved in the details. We just mentioned uh, lots of announcements and things going on, uh, but none of those things really matter if you're not a part of them with us. And so, Lord Jesus, I ask that you would uh, bless these things that we have on our calendars. Um, Many of them are added on top of things that we already have going on, but we also know that your word says that uh, we're two or more gathered in your name, that you're in the midst of them. And we also know that it says that um, people in the world will know that we're your followers because we love one another. And so, Lord, thank you for opportunities to hang out, to celebrate, um, to do life together. I lift up uh, the Bible study we're about to have, Lord, because without you, uh, we cannot have insight into your word. We cannot understand the mysteries that are there. And Lord, we want to know the depth and the width and the height and the stature of your love for us. Because we know, as Paul said, that it was the love of Christ that compelled him. And um, that love caused him to go from continent to continent and survive some of the most horrible trials, even being stoned nearly to death, or some believe he was stoned completely to death. And so, Lord, that is hope that can anchor us through anything that this life has. And so, Lord Jesus, we come to your word this morning in need to hear from you. You're the only one who can infuse life into these bones. You're the only one who can speak hope into the world that we live in. So, Lord Jesus, would you please do that as we open your word? And we trust that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 John chapter 3. So, in 1 John, we've been studying... And we've been looking at the Apostle John and his letter to the church. And this letter is meant to do several things, but one of the things that it was meant to do was to assure them that they were, in fact, children of God. And so last week we looked at how knowing that we're children of God starts with beholding the God that we claim to follow and how that changes the actions that we live out in our daily lives. So last week we ended... In 1 John chapter 3, verse 13 through 16, really, but I'm going to read verse 13. He says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. And he who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So he equates murder and hatred together. That hatred begins in the heart, not of the abundance of the heart, the mouth and the actions live out. And so here we have, he says that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But then he goes on to verse 16. He says, by this we know love because Christ laid down his life for us. So if you ever have a question of whether or not Jesus loves you, Maybe you've heard the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But what does the Bible testify of but what Christ did in order to show that he loves you? In order to show that he loves me, he laid down his life for us. He didn't lay down his life for me alone. He laid down his life for the church. Now, I did a wedding yesterday. And in that wedding, I talked about Christ's love from Ephesians 5. We know that Christ loves us, 
And he is the example for marital love, sacrificial love, love that gives until it kills you. Love is not about what we have to receive from someone. Love is something that we have to give to someone. And so Jesus being the really the, the best example, he says, by this we know love, John writes, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now, I've written in my Bible, it really proves that the love of God does not abide in that person. And so here we have this opportunity to look at the world's love compared to the love of God. And so turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 10 to a very famous story that Jesus shares with those who would listen. I think it's interesting because a lawyer came and asked Jesus a question. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do in order to inherit the thing that I am really the most interested in inheriting? Eternal life. So Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? That's a good question. He's a lawyer. He's an arbiter. He's a person that studies the law. He says, Well, what does the law say? And so he answered and said, what every good Jewish male would say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. So the question was, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus gives him something to do. He says, do this, and you shall live. How may I inherit? He says, this is proof that you have life in you. And so verse 30, Jesus answered and said to him, he's going to give him an example. He's going to tell a parable. A parable is a story, an earthly story that teaches a heavenly meaning. It's going to give heavenly application. So Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, for those of us that went to Israel, we know that to leave Jerusalem, to go to Jericho, you have to drive up a hill, and then you have to get to the top, which is the Mount of Olives, and then you have to go down a hill for a very long way towards the Dead Sea. And down in this Dead Sea Valley is a place called Jericho. And so as you get to, on the way to Jericho, this, this path that they would take was treacherous. It was dangerous. There were people outside of the city, and it was, com- it was like going through a back alley in Chicago. Like, people don't go there unless they have to. When they have to, they don't go alone. But there was a certain man who went this way alone. 
We don't know if he was not from there and he just didn't know any better or if he had no choice. But as he was traveling, it says that he was taken and he fell among thieves. And they stripped him of his clothing, they wounded him, and they departed, leaving him half dead. So, we don't know much about the man, but we know that he was taken advantage of. But then in verse 31, it says, Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So you can imagine this. This man's laying there. The priest notices him, and he goes to the other side of the road, avoiding anything to do with this man. Why? Well, for very good reasons. As a priest, he's headed down the road. Likely, he's going to Jerusalem. He represents man to God and God to man in the temple, offering sacrifice. If he helps this man, it defiles him, and he cannot make an offering. He has to go through a cleansing ritual. That's kind of a pain, right? Love is difficult. Love costs. He's supposed to represent man to God, right? But he's also supposed to represent God to man. What kind of love has he shown this man other than going unclean and walk away? So this is the man that was supposed to represent God to man, and what did he do? He missed the mark, right? And we could easily say, oh my goodness, what a religious, pious jerk. But the reality is, many times we do the same thing. It's going to cost me too much. I don't have time. I'm supposed to be doing this other thing. It's convicting. So then another man comes by, verse 32, a Levite. And when he arrived at the place, he came and he looked and he passed by on the other side. Same response, right? And so this man, this Levite, we know from the Old Testament, is from the tribe of Aaron. And he is meant to do the practical work around the church. But again, if he's unclean, if he touches this body, if he thinks that he's dead and he touches him, he's unclean, he can't serve. So he has very religious, logical reasons for not helping this man. Someone else will help him. These are the two guys that really represent a whole group of people that are meant to be the hands and feet of Jesus practically. And yet, what did they do? They avoided actually loving someone when they were messy. So then, verse 33, But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed and came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him, he bandaged his wounds, he poured oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, so this love wasn't just momentary and he left. The next day, he, when he departed, he took out two denarii. He gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So Jesus asks them, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, Well, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So here's the rub. Here's the rub. 
the one man that showed compassion, that's the word mercy, the one man that showed compassion was a Samaritan. Now, if you don't know anything about the culture, you're going big deal. It's the good Samaritan. That's what Samaritans do. No, they don't. The Samaritans were a people that were to the north who, in order to go to Jerusalem, the Jews would avoid Samaria at all costs. They would walk hours, even days, around Samaria to not get near their dirtiness, their uncleanness. Why? Because years earlier, when Babylon had come in to make captive of the nation of Israel, they took over the area where the Samaritans are, and they mixed worship with them. They caused them to worship idols. And they brought in their people, the Babylonians did, and said, make marriages with them. And essentially, it's going to sound foul, but it is, breed them out. Breed out their culture so they forget who they were, so they can be us, and we can conquer them. So the Jews see this, and they say, these guys are half-breeds. They're not really Israelites anymore. And they treated them like mutts, human mutts. So the irony in this story is that two of the guys that were supposed to be whole Israelites, direct descendants, without any impurity in their blood even, they avoided showing compassion and mercy like their God does. And yet this Samaritan, who is supposedly a spiritual mutt, knows more about the compassion and the love of God than the Israelites. And so this would rub them wrong. This would make them mad at Jesus for him saying the audacity to say that someone outside of our nation could show compassion and love like their God does. And so go back to 1 John chapter 3, and he says in verse 17, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So the Levite and the priest in this story, does the love of God really abide in this person? And I would submit to you, no, not by their actions, maybe by their words. And so in this story, who was the one who loved like Jesus? The Samaritan. Which one of them had the love of God abiding in them? The Samaritan. And look at this, the love of Jesus costs our own finances it's risky because in order to help this man, he had to stop on the same road that this man had been robbed on. It wasn't a safe road. It would be like stopping on tip top while cars are rushing by to help somebody on the side of the road and going, well, I don't know if we should stop here. It's kind of dangerous. It was risky. He could be robbed himself, but notice that he showed compassion. He loved him like he would want to be loved. And I love this because we see the love of the father in that. So in verse 18, he goes on to say, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. So I have there for you, by this, we know that we are of the truth. The way that we love people, the way that we exemplify the love of Jesus. Um, I was reading a book this weekend, I guess on Thursday or Friday, I can't remember, but I was reading a book and it was, it was talking about 
being a disciple of Jesus and loving like he does. And in the first chapter, he talked about discipleship. Now, in Jesus's day, there were many people being discipled. They had rabbis that would make disciples of the people that followed them. But a disciple, more than anything, was known for following the person that was their teacher. So they would leave everything. They would live like their their teacher did. They would do what their teacher did. They would imitate everything that he did to become like him. Now, what do you think that means for us as disciples of Jesus? We should be imitating Jesus. So if you ever are confused about what am I supposed to be as a Christian? How am I supposed to live? Just read the gospel accounts. What did Jesus do? What should I be doing? And that's what he says in verse, um, verse 16. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. It's that simple. Jesus laid down his life for me. I lay down my life for others. So this is the test This is how we know that we are of the truth. Uh, And this is a test, by the way. If you're reading this passage, I want you to be very careful. Because many times we would read something like this and say, by this we know that so-and-so is of the truth. And be able to test whether or not we think that they're actually walking in the truth. But this is a test for each one of us as individuals. By this test you and I can know if we are actually abiding in the truth of Jesus by how we love people. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before God. If you see in your life that your life is actually exemplifying Jesus, the reality is you'll have assurance, I'm actually what I say I am. I'm not just talk. I have actions that go along with us. So, If our hearts condemn us, he goes on to say in verse 20, God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Did you know that your heart can condemn you? And you might say, how? How can my heart condemn me? Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Jesus says, Either either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, he says, you will either be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So what comes out of you actually proves what you are. And so Jesus doesn't make excuse and say, well, I was just having a bad day. He says, if there's evil coming out of you, then you're evil. And if there's good coming out of you, then there's good. So our words can condemn us. But I love this because in the same way that our words can condemn us, they can also justify us. Romans chapter 10, our confession. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 10, verse 8. Romans 10, verse 8. 
I'm going to start in verse 5. Paul writes, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. And he says, The man who does those things shall live by them. I think that's interesting. Because he doesn't say that the man who says he believes these things will live by them and prove he has eternal life. He says, The man who does these things shall live. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. He says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation comes through confession and believing. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What the mouth said says proves what's in the heart. And so what I have a picture for you there of a man getting an EKG. They're checking his heart. He's getting a heart checkup. And so if your heart condemns you, God is greater than our hearts. We are not stuck in that condemnation. Romans chapter 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are trusting in Christ Jesus. That's the heart check. If your heart condemns you, who cares what your heart says? But if your heart is producing bad fruit from your mouth, then you need that heart check to prove that you need a heart transplant. God transforms our hearts and out of our hearts will come different words than originally came out because he's replaced our hearts. He's given us new hearts. He doesn't reform our hearts. He gives us new ones. And so here we have this. He says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth the confession is made unto salvation. No one can confess that Jesus is Lord unless the Lord has changed his heart. And so that's evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's new life. That's a new root that you have. So if we believe in our heart, our confession will be confidence towards God in salvation through Christ alone. If your actions condemn you, if you feel like, man, I, you know, and, and I think that we struggle with this, especially as Midwesterners. Everybody's good with Jesus on the days where they feel like they've performed well. I've checked all the, I read my Bible this morning. I prayed, I had, you know, we had evening devotions with our kids, whatever the thing is that you feel like that, that's what makes you right in God's eyes. And we're all happy, we're joy-filled, but maybe you have a bad day and you go off at work and you say something you shouldn't have, and then your heart condemns you, and in the meantime, it proves that you are trusting in your works. And that at that moment, you have the opportunity to say, Lord, forgive me, my salvation is not based on my works. It's based on my confession that you're Lord and it's your blood and it's your life lived perfectly for me that saves me. So on my worst day and on your worst day, you have reason to have joy because your worst day cannot condemn you if you are trusting in Jesus Christ. There's freedom in that. Now, does that mean there's no consequences if we go off on our boss? Does that mean there's no consequences if we sin and do something? Absolutely not. God forgives, but our consequences are still there. But even in that, I can testify personally 
that even in that, God can fix that situation. He can anoint it with his spirit and make it way better than you deserve. And so, that said, go on to verse 22. Verse 21 has already said, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence towards God. And when we have confidence, it changes the way that we interact with God. Verse 22 says, Whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Once we get over the the teeter-totter of my good works outweigh my bad today, so therefore I come to God with confidence, and we go, man, the only reason I have entrance into the Holy of Holies, the only reason God will listen to me at all, the only reason that God is interested in me is all is because He sees His Son when He looks at me. He sees me trusting in the blood of the Son. At that point, we go, man, we're set free to go, man, my confidence comes from the Lord. My strength comes from Him. And then because of that, we're not afraid to approach Him boldly and ask Him for what we need. Why? Because we keep His commandments and we do those things that are pleasing in His sight. No longer, by the way, because you have to. Now you want to. You want to please the one who saved your soul. I want to please my father because he's made it possible for me to interact with him. He's made it possible for me to do something good. And so at that point, it changes what we ask for because we keep his commandments. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandment abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So I love this because James chapter 4 verse 1 through 3 talks about the divided heart. And we can know that we abide in him by the things that we ask of him and why we ask for those things. James chapter 4, verse 1, excuse me, yeah. He says, War to wars and fights come from among you. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war and essentially you claw for the things that you desire the most is what he's saying. Yet you don't have because you don't ask. Now, if you're having one of those self-condemning days and you feel unworthy, I could see why you wouldn't ask because your worthiness is based on what you've earned. But he says in verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask for the wrong thing. You ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Your motives are tested. Verse 4, he says, adulterers and adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is an enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world and makes himself an enemy of God. And so our motives matter in what we ask. And when we're right with God and we recognize that he is for us, who can be against us? Then Psalm 37 says that as we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us what our hearts desire and our hearts will desire what he desires. And I was going to read it to you, but it's, it's longer than I thought. But The people that quote Psalm 37 only quote the beginning. But over and over, the point of Psalm 37 is that there's a heritage that God has promised to those who trust in him. 
But for those who are wicked and have rejected him, they won't, they won't inherit the promises. And so a heart fixed on one desire, which is pleasing the Lord, asks for things that will do what Jesus desires. And we could be bold in asking for those things. But our delights, our God delights to give us what we need. And I love this because in Luke chapter 11, back in Luke again, apparently that's where I was this week, the disciples have a question of Jesus. And I think many of us have these questions too, which makes me glad that they wrote them down. They said, Jesus, teach us to pray. So Jesus graciously answers their question, and he gives them what we call the Lord's Prayer. Now, I don't believe uh, that this was something that we're meant to pray specifically. I think this is an outline more than it is something that we're supposed to just repeat over and over again, because even Jesus told his disciples, like the Pharisees, they just, they just say the same thing over and over again, and they think because they just mumble the same prayer over and over again that they'll be heard. But that's not the point, although it, I think it's a good thing to memorize something like this. He, he teaches them how to pray, and he gives them this model prayer. Our Father, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, holy, set apart as your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, if you just stop there and you start your prayer by saying, Lord, I want your will to be done and yours alone, that's going to affect the rest of the way that you pray, right? You're not going to pray for things that God doesn't want done. He's not going to bless your sin, nor would you want him to if you're submitting to him this way. He says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who sins against us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So he teaches them how to pray. But then he teaches them how to pray. (laughs) He teaches them what to pray, but then he teaches them how to pray. And he's going to talk about persistence. He said to them, Which of you shall have a friend... And go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot rise and give it to you. He says, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And then he says, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will the father give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So as he's praying, he's teaching them to pray. He says, number one, here's an outline for how you should pray, things that you should be praying. But then he says, be persistent. But then above that, he says, when you ask the Father, he promises as much as you want 
he will give you the Holy Spirit. Now, why does this matter? Why, why do we need the Holy Spirit? What we're going to find is that the Holy Spirit is what is necessary for us to understand the things of God, the Word of God, the instructions of God. They cannot be discerned by the natural man. We need the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God within us, to interpret and to understand the things of the kingdom of heaven. Because otherwise, these are just earthly stories. These parables, to the person that doesn't have the Holy Spirit, it's just a story. But the person that has the Holy Spirit, it's a key that unlocks the mysteries of God. And, and so I had there for you Hebrews 4 also, where he talks about, since we have this high priest, we have entrance where we can come in boldly before the throne of grace and ask. So back here in 1 John chapter 4, as we take on this last section, He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, in verse 24, he says, He who keeps his commandments abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. There's that peace again. The Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary, and His presence in us resonates with our spirit somehow and helps us to know that we are, in fact, children of God. But then he goes on and says, test the spirits to know whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. He says in verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. So if you want to know whether or not somebody is a Christian, has the presence of the Spirit in them, the Holy Spirit, not just any spirit, what do they say about Jesus? But then he goes on to say, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. He says, You are of God, little children. You have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than the spirit who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. But we are of God, and he who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this... We know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, everyone is filled with a spirit. Everyone has the presence of a spirit within them. But what we know is that for the believer, we've had the Holy Spirit given to us, the essence of God. So the distinction is made between those who are of God and those who are not of God. And I wrote there for you, those who are of God confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, verse 2. Those who are of God have overcome the world, not in their own power, but in the power of the Spirit. Greater is he that is in me than he who is in the world, the prince of the power of the air, this Ephesians battle that's going on behind the scenes of what we can see, taste, and touch. There's a spiritual battle going on for men and women's souls. But those who have the Spirit of God, those who are of God, overcome the world and receive the teaching of the apostles. 
Those who have the Holy Spirit receive the teaching of the, Holy, of, of the apostles that were sent by Jesus, verse 6. But those who are not of God teach that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, and they have all these other weird ideas about who Jesus is. And they have the spirit of Antichrist, and we already talked about. That means they are against Christ, or they have put themselves in the place of Christ, instead of Christ, a false gospel. Those who are not of God, they speak the world's language, and the world listens to them. Have you ever tried to share Jesus with somebody, and no matter what you say to them, no matter how much you've prayed for them, it's like they hear what you're saying, but they have no idea what you're talking about. It's like you're speaking a foreign language, and they, it just goes over their head. And you know this, because if you've had a conversation about Jesus with a believer, it's like without knowing them, you know them. And without ever having any context, it just it jives. There's this ring of truth. It's like you've known them forever, even though you don't know where they're from. You may not know much about their past. You don't even know where they live. And yet there's fellowship. And it's like this foretaste of heaven. But if you've ever spoken to somebody that you thought was a believer, and you just dive in, and it's like they look at you like you have three heads. And you're like, what do you mean this doesn't make sense? I thought, I thought we were, oh, okay. You know, so the reality is there are many who think that they know the Lord, and when you talk to them, you can just tell that they don't. Nothing makes sense. They don't hear or take heed to the teaching of the apostles. They don't want any part of it. You might even suggest to them something in a moment that's not a heated moment, and they'll look at you and go, I don't think that's true. It's because they don't have the witness of the Holy Spirit in them. And so why is this so important? Why do I keep talking about the Holy Spirit? Turn with me to Matthew 13. I got a few more references, and then we'll be done for the day. Matthew 13. Hopefully by now, and maybe you don't, you've heard the parable of the sower. You've probably heard it if you've been here any amount of time because I go there all the time. It's one of my favorites. But in the parable of the sower, he explains the condition of three different hearts and he makes an explanation. And when he gets done, his disciples, who haven't been with him for very long, they look at him and they said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Verse 10. Why are you using these stories to illustrate things? Now, if you're a good teacher, I always think that illustrations make more sense many times than the main point you're trying. You're, you're trying to come alongside and, and talk to them about something they do know to explain something that they don't know. And I love illustrations, and sometimes I get a little too into them, and I mix them up. And, but the, the illustrations that Jesus gave, they wondered, why in the world are you speaking to them in this way? And in verse 11, he answered and said to his disciples, he says, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has to him, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they don't see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. 
Seeing you will perceive, you'll see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Does this mean that Jesus doesn't want them healed? Does he not want them to understand? No. To whom much is given, much is required. And if you cast a heavenly truth in front of someone and they're not ready to hear it, then they're accountable for it. And so Jesus, in grace, allows people to hear things, and yet if they're not ready to understand it, all they get out of it is an earthly story. Verse 16, he says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, because Paul, speaking to the Corinthians who are kind of highfalutin, and they, they like to listen to certain speakers who were well-polished. They were in a culture where people were very good at speaking and doing what they did, and because of that, they kind of thought pretty highly of themselves. They had all these well-polished speakers, and if someone wasn't well-polished, if they weren't well-organized in their thoughts, they didn't want to hear what they had to say. And so Paul, knowing this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He says, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The Word of God set on fire by the Holy Spirit is what changes a human life. It's not how well someone speaks. It's not even how great their PowerPoint is, as you know. It's actually in this, the Word of God understand or understood with the Holy Spirit giving understanding. And I say that to you because if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 16, Jesus unlocks this for us. Matthew 16, verse 13. Jesus came into the region called Caesarea Philippi. And he asked his disciples, saying something, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say that you're John the Baptist, and some say that you're Elijah, and others think that you're Jeremiah, or they think that you're one of the prophets. And so this is great, right? That you want to know what people think about you, right, Jesus? He says, no, I'm, I'm just, I want to know what you know about what other people think about me. Now, two groups have heard what Jesus has said. There's multitudes that have been listening to what Jesus was teaching. And some of them thought, that it was all up in the air who they thought he was. And yet, then Jesus turns to Peter and the disciples and he said to them, but what matters is who you say that I am. He says, who do you say that I am? 
So Simon Peter, being the first one to speak up, and it seems like every question, he raises his hand and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, is he right? He's right. He heard the same things taught that all of the other multitudes had who thought he was Elijah, who thought he was John the Baptist, who thought he was a prophet, who thought he was Jeremiah. And no doubt, Jesus was in the same spirit as those men. But what's interesting is Jesus answers and said to him, Simon, you're blessed. And then he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Flesh and blood cannot reveal who Jesus is to another human being. The Spirit of God is the one that opens the eyes of the heart. The Spirit of God is the only individual that can open someone's eyes to see Jesus for the all that he is. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus and you believe in him with your life and you're, you're growing in grace day by day, be assured that's, that's evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. That should be encouraging to you. If you've walked for, with Jesus for any section of moments in your life, that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. Whether you feel like you totally messed up last week or not, whether you feel like you're on fire and like, you know, Billy Graham or not, if you are walking with Jesus and you believe that he came in the flesh, you know that he's present in your life, you've seen him work, that is evidence that he is in you and there's hope. Flesh and blood, a human being might have been the the way that God revealed Jesus to you, but no one understands those words. They're just words without the Holy Spirit enlightening your hearts to believe those words. If you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that's made a change in your life at all, God's with you. Therefore, you're an overcomer. The world is not going to be able to overcome you because God's presence is in you and he's made you his own. You're a child of God. That makes all the difference. You have hope. Your eternity is secured. Walk in that truth. Believe that truth. Lean into that truth because it is the only thing in this life that cannot be taken from you. God has revealed himself to the world, yes, but it's evidence that he loves you and has revealed himself specifically to you. Wow. Wow. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So back in chapter 4, he says, By this we know the spirit that we are of, the spirit of error or the Holy Spirit. So Lord Jesus, I thank you for the evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I pray that each one of us is able to hear that and go, wow, God is in me. He has made me his own. And therefore I have hope that goes beyond all circumstances and that gives great joy. Lord Jesus, help it to us to recognize that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That we are set, we're signed, sealed, delivered for heaven. We're yours. No one can take that from us. So, Father, um, thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you that even when our own hearts condemn us, that you are greater than our hearts. Help us to believe that. Help us to know that. Help us to walk in that truth. 
Without you, we can do no good thing. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for loving us like you do. In Jesus' name, amen.